this Saturday, this morning's teaching, um, it's, it was one of those teachings this week that was, I had a lot of fun putting it together. So I liked the reading, I liked how things and passages were connected, but I don't know if that's always a good thing. You know how we, if we like something, we assume everyone else is going to like it? So I'm going to thoroughly enjoy, I think, preaching this message, and I hope that it, it reaches you in a way that is kind of enlightening and inspiring, and hopefully it'll give us a little bit of a clearer understanding of what's going on in this story. So if you will, with me, will you bow your heads and pray? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the gift of Scripture, and we're thankful that through it we can learn more deeply about your character and your love for us. And so we pray that as we look at a story today that we've read hundreds of times, that you would give us new eyes and a new understanding so that we might continue to live in the flow of how you have created us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to begin this teaching this morning, and I want to ask this question. If you had one week to live, how would you fill those next seven days? That's a really hard question to ask, I think. How, how many of you, if you had one week to live, um, would put extra hours in at work? None of us. Would we even go to work? No. How many of us, if we had one week to live, would we go on a shopping spree? Probably none of us. If we only had one week to live, I have a sense that each one of us would, would spend time with the people we care the most. We would do the things that would give us the most meaning and feed our souls to the maximum capacity if we only had that last week to live. I remember sitting in the hospital with, with a patient who, and I think I've told this story before, um, but she said, the nurse said, chaplain, this lady, I mean, it, like, it's, it stays, stays away for her and she knows it and she's just filled with anxiety and fear and she doesn't know what to do and she wants you to come in and talk to her. Well, what am I supposed to say, you know? So I get there and I'm talking to her and she says, what do I do? What do I do? I was like, well, what do you mean? She says, well, how do I spend these last few days? And I said, and I explained to her, and I said, I, I would spend it with the people you love the most. She had family coming in and out and friends, and it was painful because she knew it was just days away. How would you spend the last week of your life? Now, I don't want this to be morbid, and I'm not trying to get everybody down and depressed, but the reason I asked that is because we've started last week and until Resurrection Sunday on Easter weekend, we are looking at the last week of the life of Jesus. And I want to show, you know, explore what Jesus does when he knows that he only has six days to live. So Jesus' life was called, the culmination of Jesus' life was coming down to this final week. And I know as Christians, we, we make the biggest deal of the death and the resurrection of Jesus because, it, because we believe that it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that we are given forgiveness and we are given assurance of our eternal life. So I understand why we make such a big emphasis on it. But in truth, all of Jesus' life is, is just as important because Jesus comes to model the, the best way to live on this earth. And so this final week acts kind of as a culmination of all of Jesus' teachings, and he's wanting to make sure, and we're going to see in this story this morning, he is wanting to make sure that 
that his disciples and that all those who believe in him and, and ultimately you this morning would understand what Jesus was really trying to teach. So we don't have our PowerPoint this morning, or I didn't put a PowerPoint together. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to start with opening to Mark chapter 11. Our entire teaching series um, for Easter this year is, is out of Mark because Mark was the first gospel written. So it was the earliest accounts we have of Jesus' life. It's the shortest one. It's the one that's written most choppy. It's just kind of story after story. And it's the, the earliest account we have of Jesus' life. And we know that usually the earlier accounts people remember better than ones that happened much later. And so that's why we're focusing on the book of Mark. So if you look at Mark chapter 11, verse 12. I'm reading out of the New Revised Standard Version this morning. Verse 12 says this. So last week we did Palm Sunday. This morning we're doing Monday morning. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he, meaning Jesus, was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, meaning it had leaves, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat from you ever or from you again. And his disciples heard it. So I'm going to pause here. So Jesus is walking in with his disciples into Jerusalem from Bethany. Jesus realizes, hey, I'm hungry. And in the distance, he sees a fig tree. So the first question we want to ask is, why just one fig tree? Do fig trees, are they just one and they're like, there's nothing else around it? So the first question we want to ask is, why just one fig tree? Second of all, the Bible tells us that there was leaves. And so, you know, I think for most of us, if we see a tree that has a lot of leaves, we might think to ourselves, well, maybe there's going to be fruit and maybe there's going to be food on there or fruit on there. So Jesus is hungry. He walks to the fig tree. He looks and the Bible says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. So it's making a clear statement that A, there were no figs on there. But also Mark is, re is explaining that it wasn't the season for figs. Do you think that Jesus would have known that it wasn't the season for figs? I, yeah, he did. Like, it's Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, it was an agricultural society, so he understood. So he knew that he, he knew when he's like, hey, I'm hungry, he knows that there really aren't going to be fig trees on that fig tree. So if Jesus knows that there aren't going to be any figs on the fig tree, why does Jesus get upset and say, may no one ever eat fruit from you again? It, it kind of sounds like Jesus is cursing this tree, even though the tree was never supposed to have the figs on them because it wasn't the season for figs. It, it kind of makes Jesus abuse his power or his supernatural power. I mean, at first reading, that's what it looks like, right? Some of you are like, no, because you don't want to say that about Jesus. But if it was somebody else, you'd probably be like, yeah, why is he acting like such a kid? Like he already knew that there weren't going to be any figs there. So here's why this story is important. Mark uses a literary device. A literary device is basically a way of writing. And what Mark does in, the, in his book, six times he uses what are called intercalating stories or overlapping stories. And here's what it means. Mark, and I'll phys physically show you, Mark would start one story here, right? So if this speaker was a story, this would be the story of the fig tree. And then what happens is he starts a story and then he kind of cuts it off and then he goes and he begins to tell a second story. So let's pretend that this podium is the second story. 
And when he's done telling the second story, Mark then goes back, and let's just pretend the guitar, I won't touch it, don't worry guys, but let's pretend the guitar is, is actually the conclusion of the first story. All right, so this is what Mark does six times throughout the text. And it wasn't original to Mark. It was a way of telling stories. And so the story of the fig tree actually was what we call the cipher or, or how, what's another word I, I could use? It was the story, the interpretation for the next story that he was about to tell. Does that make sense? Do you begin to see why this is so exciting for me? <laughs> you guys are like, what a nerd. But it matters, and it matters. So the story of the fig tree, what Jesus is trying to say is that the fig tree wasn't bearing fruit, and so it became useless to him. So that's kind of what he's saying. A tree that's supposed to bear fruit but wasn't bearing any fruit, there's a problem with that tree. And what's important about that story is that his disciples heard it, and that's what will connect us at the end. So story number one. The fig tree was oftentimes used by rabbis. So Jesus was a rabbi because he had 12 disciples. He was also more than a rabbi, but he functioned as a teacher to these 12 disciples. All right, so in rabbinic literature, the rabbis would often use like a fig tree to, make their, to prove their points. They would use the fig tree to try to, to tell their students a deeper truth about life. So when Jesus says, may that fig tree never bear fruit again, he was actually setting up the disciples for a learning moment. And the disciples would have understood that. They didn't understand what he was trying to say necessarily, but they knew that this fig tree and this story and Jesus cursing it was actually going to help to set them up to understand something in the future. So for us in the 21st century, we never would have understood that, right? This is one of those stories we skip over because we don't know how to explain it. But in the first century and in the time surrounding that, people would have understood that Jesus is about to make a point. He is using this to make a profound point. So we go to story B, or story number two, and that is in verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those And he overturned the tables, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. I'm going to stop here. You know, whenever we talk about this story, um, we know people always kind of use this as a sense of saying, you see, when Jesus comes into the temple... That was him showing his holy indignation. And that's like the one story in all of the New Testament where we see Jesus actually getting upset, right? And so we kind of point to that, and, and we don't really know what to do with it. And I remember growing up, this story was used, and I grew up in a Hispanic church. And uh, Hispanic churches, one of the ways that we would do fundraisers is, what, what, what do you guys, some of you know, we would have socials every single Saturday night. And what would we do? We would sell plates of food. And so that was, you know, that was kind of how we raised money. And people would pay, you know, $2 for enchiladas and rice and beans and all that stuff. And, and then this passage was then used later at a different church to say, that's why you can't sell that stuff at church because of what the Bible says. And so there has been so much misinformation about what Jesus was doing here. And I'm going to argue that Jesus wasn't actually upset. Jesus wasn't actually angry at the people 
I think to say that Jesus was angry is to miss the point entirely of what this story is actually trying to say. And so we have to ask the question, what was the problem? Why was Jesus bothered by what was happening? Why did he start, you know, you know we, we often think of Jesus, like, have you ever read the Bible? And when you're reading the, the, the words of Jesus, do you always think of Jesus as this kind of like kind and loving person? And did you guys do like get that? Like that voice in your head that kind of sounds like Jesus was just this really nice guy that spoke softly. And then all of a sudden, boom, in the temple, he starts turning over tables. Like that just doesn't fit the way that we understand Jesus to be. So what was the problem? Now, when we think of the temple, and it functioned very different then than churches function today. But when we think of the temple, the temple was, was the visible, tangible representation of how people, believers, interacted and had relationship with God. So the temple was the place where you would go and have this kind of relationship with God. Um, the, the idea of that, you know, when people say that you, you should have a personal relationship with God, those words are new in the last like 160 years. Before that, people didn't use words like you need to have a personal relationship with God, just kind of a historical aside there. But in the first century, the temple was the place where your relationship with God actually, that was like the center of it. And so there was sacrifices that you would bring. Now, the oldest way for people to relate to each other was by, a, by giving gifts and by having a meal together. Have you ever noticed like when you have a meal with friends and family, it's just a wonderful experience. You continue to continue to connect. That's why I, li I love why, um, how Christine and... Jaime continually have people over at their house every Sabbath. Um, it's not because they just want to feed you, but I, it's because we believe that when people eat together, relationships flourish. So the oldest way for relationships to flourish were the meals, were, were table, to, table time, table fellowship together. So the problem we have to ask is, what was Jesus' problem? There were two types of, two ways to view the sacrifices. So people would come from long distances, and, and the problem probably wasn't that they would sell doves or animals there at the temple, because it wasn't realistic for people to bring from hundreds of miles away an animal that you know, may not make it, right, to offer as a sacrifice. So perhaps it wasn't really with the, with the sacrifices that people were giving that Jesus had a problem with. After all, God had instituted that thousands of years beforehand. They were, they were just doing what they had been told to do. So one offering was a gift offering, and, and a gift offering was when you would bring an animal or food, and you would set it on the altar, and it would burn. And so as it was burning, what happens when you burn something? What comes up? Smoke. And the smoke was this meta, kind of like this, it was symbolizing that this offering was reaching into the heavens, and, and it was in some ways, you know, reaching God. And so that's why they were doing it. They were bringing it as an offering, like, God, you are our God. We, we value you as the king of the universe. And so that's what they were doing. Another one was a meal sacrifice, which they would bring the animals, they would pour the blood on the altar, and again, they would burn it. And this was a daily occurrence, all day long. This is how their relationship with God grew. They brought something, they offered it, God accepted it, and they were good with God. And so all the commentators are saying, well, that, that's probably not what was bothering Jesus so much. Like, that's probably not what was at stake because, you know, God had instituted that thousands of years ago and Jesus hadn't laid his life down, so technically it was still very valid. 
And some commentators would even say that it wasn't even the high priest, the office of the high priest that Jesus had a problem with. Because again, this is, what God had, this is how God set up the system thousands of years ago. And there was a high priest who would once a year offer a special sacrifice um, into the most holy of holies, right into the, in the most holy place of the sanctuary. And he would sprinkle the blood all around. And that's what would give forgiveness to the entire nation of Israel one time a year. So it probably wasn't the high priest, the office of the high priest. But here's what was happening that I think is important. Usually the high priest, and here's a trivia, the, the, the priests out of the nation of Israel would come from one tribe. Do you guys know what tribe that was? The tribe of Levi. Back when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God separated the people into 12 tribes, and the tribe of Levi, A, was the one that didn't get an inheritance in land because their inheritance was to serve the Lord. And their inheritance was to do the daily temple um, rituals and all of the stuff that went into maintaining the temple, and then they would have one high priest, and the high priest that was chosen would, would be the high priest for his entire life. Are you guys still, are you guys still following me? Yeah. <laughs> Like, I find this fascinating, but <laughs> that's why I mean, it matters. Trust me, stay tuned, stay in tune. So the way that the high priest would work is if I was chosen as a high priest, I would be the high priest until I died. And then at that point, um, someone else would become the high priest, and they will do it until they died. And so that's how the high priest was chosen. But shortly before Jesus' time, things were no longer like that. In fact, the temple was a symbolic house of God on earth during Jesus' time, but it was also the seat of institutional power for Rome. And here's what I mean. The temple was in Jerusalem. There were Jews all around. They would come to this. And the Roman Empire, remember last time we said we didn't want to give them too much power, so they started to put their own Roman things into the temple. So one of the things that, that Herod tried to do was put a golden eagle, which was the sign of imperial Rome, their dominance and their speed, and they tried to put a, a golden eagle on top of one of the gates, and one of the Jewish teachers had his students go and cut it off. All of those men would ultimately be killed for that. right? So there was ways that Rome kept trying to infiltrate this. Here's the way that they infiltrated it the most. The Roman governor in the time, he got to choose who the high priest was. And he chose from one of four families. So it was no longer the way God had intended it to be, but now it was between four families, and they would only reign about four years each turn. So there was no longer the high priest who was dedicated to God and doing all of God's work and serving the people, but now the high priest, it was almost like an election, and each family was trying to gain favor with the Roman emperor so, or the governor so that he could then choose who would be the high priest. You see, for the high priest, it was no longer about, well, let us serve God only and not worry about other people. But it was like, yeah, well, we're going to do, do the sacrifices and we're going to still do everything we were doing. But see, now we're bringing in all these other people to sell stuff so that people don't have to really bring them in from out of town, which, which may not have been so bad. But that's also where the temple taxes were collected and those were given to Rome. So all of a sudden, the temple specifically the high priest, was no longer living just to serve God, but they were also living to appease the governor so that they could keep their job as high priest. Being a high priest with a lot of perks, a lot of advantages, and, action, and wealth. All right, so when Jesus comes into this place, he comes in and it's like, yeah, everything, 
Everything looks like it's working out. Everything looks like it should, but no one was really showing up or no one was offering their sacrifices. Um, they were offering their sacrifices and then that was it. And, and so that's when, I, that's when in verse 17 it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And here's the problem. When somebody is a thief and they rob, let's say you rob a bank. You have to say there's like 10 of you, right? You guys rob a bank and then you say, you know, I'm just thinking of how the movies do this, right? But they'll say, okay, if we get split up, we're going to meet in such and such a location and that's their safe house, right? So let's say people would go in, rob a bank, and then go and meet in their safe place. Does that mean that they're not thieves? No, they still are. But they have this false sense of like, well, now that we got this far, we're going to be safe. Now that we're at our safe place or this den, no one is going to find us and we're going to be okay. Which meant that if they did get away with it, then they could go and rob and, and um, they could go and rob other people in other places. And as long as they kept coming back and hiding well enough, then no one would know that it was them. And so when Jesus says that the temple has become a den of robbers, here's what Jesus is saying. And here's where the fig tree story is going to come into play. He said, outwardly, it looks like your worship is exactly as it should be. You're offering sacrifices. You're showing up. We're doing the prayers. We're doing the liturgies. There's a high priest. Everything looks as it should. But your lives are not showing that you are truly worshiping God. And here's what he means by that. If we, if we um, look at Jeremiah chapter 7, he's saying, outwardly, and with your lips you acknowledge and you worship God. But the way that you are living your lives shows me that you don't understand what it means to worship God. Jesus, when he's turning over these tables, listen, the next minute over, people are going to turn the tables back and everything is going to resume. But what Jesus was doing was symbolically shutting down the temple. He was symbolically destroying the temple and he was fulfilling Jeremiah 7. And let me just read this. Jeremiah 7, verse 1. Jer God tells Jeremiah, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, he said, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and proclaim this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, so Israel, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. All right, so, he is, so God is saying, listen, tell all the people that are going to the temple, to the church, and tell them to change their ways. The problem wasn't what they were doing, it was the motivation of their heart that was the problem. Jesus, God is saying, here, change your ways and let me dwell with you in this place. Verse 4. Do not trust in your deceptive words that say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, and here's what he means. If you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien or the refugee that comes into your land, the orphan and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Verse 8, here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. 
Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, which was one of the other gods, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and then say we are safe, only to go on doing all of these abominations, and this is where Jesus quotes from, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. See, when Jesus quotes that the temple had become a den of robbers, what he is doing and what everybody would have understood is that he was quoting from Jeremiah 7. They didn't have verses back then, but they would have known that Jesus was quoting from Jeremiah 7. And Jesus, when he symbolically shuts down the temple, it's because it wasn't bearing the fruit. You see, for worship to be true worship of God, it must also be followed by how you live your life. It isn't just about saying all of the right words. Anybody can say the right words. Every single one of us does, in fact, say the right words about God. But the question is, are you living justly? Are you doing what God wants you to do? This is why I have such a problem with our political system. And, and I'm sorry, this is both, both sides, okay? Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, whatever. Because we so often allow them to define what Scripture teaches and what Christianity is about. But the truth is, is they can never define it because they're not there to teach us Scripture. They're there to get a job. And they'll say and do whatever they have to. But as Christians, and, and this, is, this is the church is kind of our cultural and societal, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like, like to live by scripture is to live in defiance of the dominant narratives of our time. That's what Palm Sunday was about, that we don't need power and wealth and surplus in our lives. All we need is God. So when Jesus comes into the temple, Right? He's mad at the high priest because they're more worried about what their government wants than what God wants. He's mad at the people because the people are going through all of the actions and through all of the ways they're supposed to be doing church or temple, but they're not living their lives in a way that shows that they are truly worshiping God. I have this quote that I want to read here as we get close to the end. This writer says that since, since God is just... And the world belongs to God. Worship cannot be separated from justice because worship and union with a God of justice empowers the worshiper for a life of justice. There isn't just one verse. If you look at Amos chapter 5, Hosea chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter 28 will say the same thing. Your worship is pointless if it's not informing and shaping how you live your life. So when we come back to kind of close this off, the, if we pretend that this is the fig tree, what Jesus was actually saying is that the temple was no longer bearing the fruit in the lives of people. Their worship and how they were worshiping, they were just doing it for their own sinful desires. Here's what happens the other day. And, and I think this is normal in our society, okay? So the other day, I was, I was, I was somewhere, say where, it wasn't here, and, and there was a girl and a guy who are friends, and one of the girls says, oh, man, we have to, make, we have to hurry up because we have to get to church. We have to get to church because, we, you know, yesterday was pretty bad. I didn't know what that was, right? 
And, and I'm just like, in, in my head, I'm like, going to church doesn't make your wrongs right. So this is my message for me too, though. Can I just say that? I'm not judging her because I hardly know her. I'm judging myself. That just because I stand up here and preach on a weekly basis and I study the scriptures and I say all the right words, it doesn't erase the bad things I do. Coming to church doesn't make you closer to God. Or, or, or coming to church doesn't make God say like, oh, I'm so glad. No, because the Bible right here is teaching us that people could be coming to church but not being connected to God. And so what the Bible and what Jesus is teaching us in this narrative is that when you worship and when you connect to God, not just in church but in your everyday life, if it is, if it is not shaping the way you interact with people, if you are not acting justly, right, if you are not being loving and kind and generous, then you are not do, you're, then you're missing the point of what worship is. Because worship is about connecting to God in a special way. Scripture, reading your Bible and prayer is about connecting to God. And if that is not informing how you live your life, it's like the fig tree that has no fruit. It's pointless. Do something else with your time because it's not doing what its intended purpose is to do. Does that make sense? And so when we finish the story in Mark, by the way, this is like a judgment text on all of us. Myself primarily, in the sense that I'll, I'll, I'll preach this to myself. So he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Don't make this a safe place for people just to feel good because they're dressed the right way and they're saying all of the right things. And then verse 20, in Mark 11, verse 20 says this. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And that's where Mark closes that. So it's, it starts with the fig tree and it ends with the fig tree. But what the fig tree was really there for was to say that if the temple and the worship isn't bearing fruit in your life and you are not living your life informed by God and by worship, then you are just like the fig tree that is dead. Our worship, your worship, your relationship with God must, by definition, by having a relationship with God, pour out in how you act with other people. And I understand that not, you know, and it doesn't mean that if you're like bad one day that then you should just stop. But, but what I'm saying is that be conscious of this and continually ask the questions, is my faith, is my relationship with this God, is it shaping how I live my life? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... um. This is clearly a judgment on each one of us this morning. I don't know that any of us would say that we aren't bearing any fruit. But I pray that you would use this passage to teach every single one of us here to open our eyes in a more clear way and to ask the difficult questions about whether our worship of you is truly shaping and changing how we live our lives. And so we pray a prayer of repentance whenever we are doing what we want and not what you want. And my prayer is that each person here would continue to bear the fruit that comes only from being encountered by you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.